Well, my name is Ron Cool, and I'm one of the pastors here. And again, it's a joy to welcome all of you here. Last week, Sunday, we began a new, a new sermon series. And it's a sermon series on a topic that we know we ought to talk about. It's in a topic that's a really important one, but it's also one that makes most of us at least a little bit uncomfortable. And it's the topic of evangelism, right? Uh, evangelism. On, on the one hand, we know. We know as followers of Jesus Christ, if you are indeed a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're not, follow along with us anyway. But but, but we know that if we belong to Jesus Christ, we're supposed to tell others about Jesus. We're supposed to be involved in in reaching out to others and and bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to others. We know that Jesus himself, the last words he said in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, Jesus said, go out to all the world and make disciples baptizing them, teaching them to to obey everything I've commanded you. Go out and make disciples. The Apostle Paul modeled that. Peter models it of going out and telling others about Jesus Christ. We know that we're supposed to do that. And and, and for most of us, I think, again, we also have a genuine desire for people to experience and, and, and to learn about God's amazing grace. I mean, we we have people who are near to us, for some of us very close to us, brothers and sisters, parents, some of us children who are uh, are just not, they don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And, And we want them to experience God's grace. We want them to experience the peace and the joy that comes from knowing that we belong to God. And so we know we ought to. We really genuinely want to. But the reason it's a challenge is it's just so difficult to know how. We live in a culture that kind of wants to say to us, been there, done that. You don't need to tell me anything. I've already decided I don't believe in Jesus. I don't want to hear about him. You Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. And, 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 and so we have this struggle with figuring out how do we tell others? How, how do we share the good news of, of Jesus Christ? And that's what we're, we're doing in this, story, in this series. We're really trying to answer that question of how do we help people come to know Christ? How do we help people come to know Jesus? How can we be as effective as we can be in that? And, and, and so we started off last week, and what we're going to talk about are, are four activities. I, I want to try to avoid, I'll probably fall into it once or twice, but I don't want to say steps because it's not like, okay, we do number one and then we do number two. These are things that we're continually doing as we work through this. And there are four activities that I want us to, to, to think about. And, and last week, Daniel started us off with what I would probably call, again, the most important one, and that is, that is we've got to pray. The fact is, you can't change anybody's life. I can't change anybody's life. I can't convince somebody that Jesus is Lord. I can't convince somebody of that. I can't change anybody's heart and anything. So we can't do that. But God can. And so we said we need to be in prayer. We need to say, God, we need you to do that. And and specifically at the end of the service, uh, Daniel asked us to identify three people and to write down their names and to make a commitment to pray for these three people for the next 30 days, all right? We're going to pray for three people for 30 days. And in fact, over on the prayer room there to my right, your left, if you can see that across there, um, some of the prayer tent people just took the first names, wrote them on post-it notes, and put them up there. We actually had a thousand different names come in, and, and so those are some of them there. And so just kind of, you know, and, and, and what we're doing is we're asking God to open doors. And so that's why on the doors of the prayer room, we thought, well, we're pretty clever here, uh, you know, that on the doors of the prayer room, we would say, you know, God, open up a door. Open up a door for me to build a relationship. Open up a door for, for these people. Open up a door for your spirit to be at work in their hearts. And, 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 and so that's the first thing. And we're going to pray 30 days for three people. That's why we came up with this logo. And other churches are doing this along with us. But 30 for three, that's what we're calling this series. So first thing, first activity is, is pray. First, uh, and, and again, it's, it's where we start and we need to be doing this all along. Second one is, is really important, and, and I have some real passion on this one because I think, especially in our culture, this is a really important thing. And, and we talk about it, I think, with some regularity here. But again, focus on it this morning in a very specific way in terms of outreach and in terms of having an impact on the people around us. 
But I think the, the second activity that we need to constantly be engaged in is this. It's, it's living a weird and wonderful life, okay? Living a weird, being distinct, being strange, being different. What I mean by that is, for the most part, again, sometimes I think God calls us just to go talk to somebody. But for the most part, you know what? I think before we speak, and especially in our culture, especially in our situation, before we speak to somebody, before we hand out a tract, before we go to our neighbor and say, do you know Jesus? Before we do something like that, sorry, I become a Southern Baptist whenever I, yeah. Before I do that, I need to live out a life of following Christ. I need to, to become more and more like Jesus. I, I need to live it out. Again, not perfectly, none of us can. That's not what I'm talking about. But, but I think God's, one, well, let me put it this way. One of God's main methods of evangelism, there are other ones in scripture, but I think I, I would, for me, this is the one that resonates most. So I don't know if it's the main one, but it's at least one of the main ones. But one of the main methods of, of, of evangelism for God, I, I think is this. What he does is, and we talked about this a lot with Abraham, is he creates a people. He, he's gonna create a people who will be his presence in the world. A people who will show others what he is like. Again, we talked about that with Abraham all summer working through that. We saw in Genesis 12, verse 3, that God says, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And then those amazing words, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And one of the things we saw is that, that God's plan and, and the way that Abraham blessed others is, is Abraham was to live in relationship with God. He was supposed to live in faith with God. He was supposed to honor God. And then in that, and, and in that relationship, others would say, okay, now I see what God is like. Now I see what God is like. Now I understand more about who God is. But the first step, Abram wasn't told to go out and tell people about God. He was first of all told, just live it out, okay? Just live a life of faith and obedience and trust. And, 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 and that's what just God's people has been called to do. 450, 500 years after God says this, the people of Israel are in slavery and God brings them out, right? And, and in Exodus 19, right before he gives the 10 commandments, that's in Exodus 20, okay? So before he gives the 10 commandments and says, this is what my people look like, this is what he says. He says, although, Exodus 19, end of five, start of verse six, although the whole earth is mine, you, people of Israel, my people, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, okay? Now, a priest was somebody who brought the word of God to people and who brought the needs of the people to God. He was a go-between, right? The priest was somebody who, who, who was there. And what God is saying is, Israel, you're a go-between. You're gonna bring just by the way you treat each other, by the way you love each other, by the way you care for those who are in need, by the way you do that, you are gonna bring my word into this world. And God put Israel at a crossroads, so interesting. We didn't do a lot with that in Abraham, but God put Israel at a place where the, one, you know, even the three largest nations at the time, Israel was right in the middle. So when they traded, they went through Israel. And God says, you're going to be, for me, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You are going to be distinct. You are going to be separate. You are going to be somebody who, who, who just, by your life, people are going to say, tell me what makes you so weird and tell me what makes you so wonderful. We jump to the new, uh, no, another one more Old Testament passage from, from Solomon, 1 Kings 8, okay? 1 Kings 8, Paul, Solomon is, is talking about what he wants God to do, okay? Look at this. Clearest one, I think, of all. May he turn our hearts, may God turn our hearts to him, to walk in obedience to him, and keep the commands, decrees, and laws he gave our ancestors. May he, may he just make us into the people he wants us to be. Why? So that we'll feel better than everybody else. No, why? So that all peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. Live this way. Solomon says, I want us, and again, I, I just pray this. I want us to be a people who, who are so filled with God's presence 
and, and, and who love and care and serve and give and do all those things that God calls us to do in, in such a way that the world may know. That the world may know. Again, I'm not saying we got to be perfect. But again, I, I, I at this point, again, Solomon isn't saying so that we can tell everybody. No. Give our lives holiness. Give our lives a Christ-likeness. And in this case, a God-likeness. Give our lives that so that by looking at us, the world may know. Now we jump to the New Testament. The Apostle Peter And he's writing to a group of Christians. And in 1 Peter 2, this is the start of really what we're looking at as a text this morning. 1 Peter 2, verse 9, he says this to a group of Christians. But you are, he'll say, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's Exodus 19.6, isn't it? Right? We just read that about Israel. And now Peter is saying, guess what, church? You are the new Israel. He'll say, you are the new Israel. You are a, 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 a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You, we are called to bring God's presence. We are called to be the presence of God here in this place. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are God's special possession that we may declare, not because we're so great, but that we may declare the praises of him who called you, us, out of darkness into his wonderful light. Okay? We are people who are God's special possession because for some crazy reason he loved us. And though we were broken, he saved us. Paul says, or Peter goes on to say this, verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Again, that's why in our service, we, you know, we, we confess our sins because we were people who have sinned and, 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 and we need that mercy. And we are people now who have received that mercy. And then verse 11 is kind of the shift of the whole book because now Peter starts to say, okay, this is who you are. Now this is how I want you to live. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, weird and wonderful, strangers in this world, you don't fit, okay? As foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires. Don't be like everybody else. Don't let greed control your life. Don't let anger control your life. Abstain from sinful desires which wage against your soul. And then verse 12, live such good lives. Live such good lives among the pagans, unbelievers, that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, and, and they did. In Peter's day, they accused him of incest because they talked about loving brothers and sisters all the time. They talk, accused him of cannibalism because they said they ate Jesus. And really, seriously, those were accusations made again. Though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds. They may see your genuine love and glorify God on the day he visits us. And, and, and that's why I want to say, you know, this has been one of God's main methods of evangelism. He creates a people who are going to be his presence in the world. And the fact of the matter is right now, today, we are to be those people. We are to be weird and wonderful. That is God's calling in our lives. And I think one of the questions we've asked ourselves here before, and, and we've got to keep asking ourselves and keep working on it, are we weird enough? Are, are we weird enough? I mean, are, 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 do I, is there anybody who looks at me who knows me and says, Ron's different? In the way that Ron loves, in the way that Ron handles adversity, in the way that Ron handles this, Ron is a little different. Is there any, because you know what, that's God's call on my life. To be a person who is different, to be a person who is weird, to be a person who doesn't fit in. So what I want to do with the time we have left is two, I want to ask two questions. The, the first one is, we're going to spend more time on this one because I'm going to leak into the second one as I answer it. But the first question that I want to ask about, I think is an important one for us to think about, and that is, you know, it, it's what does Christian weirdness look like, okay? I mean, the scriptures call us to be different. The the scriptures call us to be weird, but how are we supposed to be weird? Some of you are very weird. 
not necessarily in the right ways, okay? All right? So what, what, does Christian, what, what does Christian weirdness look like? And then we'll ask, all right, how can we grow in that? How do I become weirder? How do I become more strange in this world? So what does Christian weirdness look like? Uh, you know, I mean, there, there are people have been trying to answer this question from the beginning. And as I thought about this, I thought, you know what? I, I, there's a part of me that takes this with some seriousness. And saying, is it being like the Amish, right? They certainly qualify as different. You know when you're meeting somebody who's Amish. They have black clothes on. They have very plain clothes on. The women have their head covered. Men often are wearing beards. They don't have cars. They don't use electricity. And, 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 and so, you know, we look at that and we say, well, that qualifies as weird, all right? That qualifies as different. They certainly don't fit in with the rest of the world. Now, again, obviously, I, I don't think we should not have cars since I drove here this morning. And so I don't think we should go all that way. But I want to say there is something so tempting about it. There is something powerful about the witness the Amish people give us. In a world where we are running around like crazy to say, would it be more tempting to be a little simpler? Doesn't it sound good sometimes? I, I was thinking about this a little different, but, but when I was in, in Cuba 12 or 14 years ago, um, and a lot of challenges there and so on, but we were sitting down with another person from our church who was there, and in the morning there was a, a couple, an older couple, walked down the street, they were holding hands, and they obviously walked to the store, and then we saw them 15 minutes later walking back carrying a loaf of bread. She said, you know, isn't that sad? They, they, they can't even buy back two loaves of bread. They can't get enough bread for the week. And I said, you know, because there, there, there is, it's a huge lack. Don't, I'm not, but I said, on the other hand, when was the last time you spent a half an hour every morning holding hands with your spouse? When was the last time you spent a half hour taking a walk with your spouse? Who's the losers? <laughs> right? I mean, we got to say, uh, that, that, yeah, that, that they what, what, what are we telling people? Are we any different? And, and again, let me just kind of, on this Amish thing, with the, having gotten to know some Amish people, really wonderful folks. You know, one thing to understand is they don't, it's not that they reject electricity and cars because electricity and cars are evil. You know why they don't have cars? Cars, they, don't, they wouldn't call them sinful at all. It's not a sin at all. But the reason they don't have cars is because they don't want to get as busy as you and I are. When you don't have a car, you can't get everywhere. In some ways, you say, well, our car helps us get everywhere. But then we have 20 more places to go. You don't have a car, you stay home at night. You don't have a car, you spend time with your, friend, with your family. You don't have a car, you spend time with your neighbors. You and I got cars, and how often are we home with our families in the evening? And how often do any kid, as soon as they get that license, they're gone? Who's the fools? I, I, you know, I mean, I'm just, so yeah, I'm not ready to kind of say, hey, let's all become Amish. But, but I do think, look at how, how much we just kind of, get into things and, and slide into it without really thinking about what makes us different. Is it, is it being like the Amish? I, I, some parts, yes. Some parts, no. Is it refusing to cut our lawns on Sunday? For some of us, we were raised with that, that that's our Christian witness. We're not going to cut our lawns on Sunday. Now, you know what? It may be a good thing. And I, and I think, again, what this is rooted in on its best is, is to say, you know what? Sunday's going to be a day where we're together with our family. Sunday's a day where we're going we're gonna to say to the world, I don't need to go to work today because I know God's going to take care of me. You know, you're going to say, well, you're going to lose out on money. You're going to lose out on jobs. Yeah, but it's not, I'm, God, I'm in God's hands, okay? So, so on the one hand, yeah, but we have to be careful because people don't care whether we cut our grass on Sunday or not. They care about whether we have families that are healthy and, and, and whether we love each other. And so if this helps us do it, then go ahead. I mean, you know what I'm saying? I mean, and, 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 and so... But it's, this is an easier one. We say, well, this is what makes us weird and wonderful. We don't do this. We don't cut our grass on Sunday. Pretty low-level discipleship for me. I mean, I, I can get away with that. Not too tough. Um, 
a little kind of silly here, but is it shaving our heads? Some of us remember the days when the Hare Krishnas would be in the airport with flowers and shaved heads. You knew they were weird. Um, if we all walked out of here with shaved heads, you would all get asked tomorrow, what in the world happened? All right. But I don't think that's a good thing for us to do. Okay. I'm not going not gonna to end the service that way. So what does it look like? What does Christian weirdness look like? I think if we look at, the, uh, at Peter in his letter... I want to suggest, I'm going to list off six things. Don't worry about trying to memorize all six or get all six or whatever. Just kind of think about it and get a feel for what these things are like. Because I think these are the things that, that, require, that, that really are going to make a notice, a, a difference. That are going to make, a, a, a people will not notice us, but will notice Christ as we do these things. And the first one that I want to suggest, the first Christian distinctive that, that Peter talks about here. Again, I'm not saying it's most important, but the first one Peter mentions is we are to be people who have hope no matter the circumstances. You know, that, that, that's a more powerful witness than not cutting your grass on Sunday. To be a person of hope, to be a person who says, you know what? And it doesn't mean we don't grieve. It doesn't mean there's not bad stuff that happens. It doesn't mean there's not brokenness. But if we live with that assurance, if we live with that hope, with that faith that says, my God still is in control. If we do that, no matter what, I think people will say, how do you handle this? How do you handle this? If we go through life recognizing it, this is what, this is what Peter says. Verse 3 of chapter 1. So the third verse, Peter says, you know, he does greetings, and then he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a, a living hope, right? That's what it is. It's a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And, and I want to suggest that we live in a world that is full of cynicism. And, and again, this election cycle has certainly brought it out, right? Temptation to bitterness, cynicism, despair, sin. It's just also, and it's, and it's so tempting. And there are so many people who, who, you know, but what if we in this election cycle, what if we in all of our lives said, you know what, I may not like this, I may not like that, and we get involved, don't hear me wrong. But we say, you know, but ultimately my life is in, in the hands of Christ. Ultimately the, my identity is in, in Jesus Christ. That would give us a freedom from having to be involved in certain ways. Uh, some of you have modeled this, I think, really well. Some of you, I, there's a, a video clip, I know a number of you have seen it. Um, Andy Stanley is, is preaching. Uh, he did this actually last January. And, and he's preaching on Hebrews 12, verse 3, okay? Hebrews 12, verse 3, this is the text. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart, right? So that you will hold on to hope. And he said, keep your eyes on Jesus so that you hold on to hope. And he challenged me, and, and my guess is he's going to challenge you, to think about ways in which we just lose heart, in which we lose hope, and what that does to the people around us. So I want to watch you. Have you, have you watched this clip a minute, all right? Now, real quick, I want to say something to a couple groups, all right? First, I want to say something to all of you who are 45 years old and older. You don't have to raise your hand, okay? 45 and older. Look up here. Many of you have grown weary and you've lost heart. And the reason is because you have fixed your eyes on a political system. You have fixed your eyes on a political leader. You have fixed your eyes on the good old days. You fixed your eyes on the economy and you are, you are growing weary and you need to knock it off. And I'll tell you why, because you are scaring the children. You are. Now look up here, look, look. The generation that's coming along behind us are going to take their cue from us. And here's the cue we're giving them. Oh my goodness, if we don't get the right person in the, in the, you know, elected in office, it's the end of the world. If we don't fix the economy, it's the end of the world. If we don't have religious freedom like my mama and my grandmama had religious freedom, it's the end of the world. Oh my goodness, if we don't get the right laws passed, if we don't have the right policies, it's all coming unraveled. 
Nothing could be further from the truth. Look up here. Government and government matters, policies matter, but neither of those matter as much as men and women who understand this word. Faith. Confidence that God keeps his promises and that nothing can thwart the plans of God. We know this from the Old Testament. We know this from the New Testament. We know this because the most powerful person in Judea, Pilate, looked at Jesus and said, what is truth? Crucify him. Game over. It's done. Let's move on. And the only reason you know who Pilate is, the only reason you know who Pilate is, is because you know the story of Jesus. Pilate, the governor, becomes a footnote in the story of Jesus. In fact, most of the first century people you know about, you know about because they're part of the story of Jesus. We have nothing to fear. So all of you people over 45, knock it off. You need to model for the next generation that God is in control. God can be trusted. Get involved in the political system. Get involved in culture. Get involved in your society. But you never fix your eyes there. You fix your eyes on Jesus. We're scaring the children. <laughs> Think about that. I mean, I, I have to think about myself. Again, ask you to do the same, but say, you know, do I fall into that trap sometimes? Saying, oh, this is all, I, I, I have to, because I feel like I need to be in control. But you know what? The fact is, no matter who wins the election, it's not the end of the world. And let's just say it's the end of the United States. That's not the end of the world. The world's going to end when Jesus comes back, period. And in the meantime, he is still Lord, and I am in his hands. And, and care. I, I love it that, that Andy got it right about saying, you know, get involved. I'm not saying that at all. But what if all the time, all our interaction as Christians was an interaction that, was, that had that degree of separation because I know that I belong to Jesus Christ. It had that degree of assurance that we, yes, we take it seriously, but we don't, we don't act like it's an end game because it's not. And, and, and so that's why I say, you know, hope is such a powerful, you know, that, that we are people of hope. And what if in the next three and a half weeks, anytime anybody says anything to us, we say, you know what, that's, that's great. And I have, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're passionate about that. And I am too. And here's what I think. But, you know, more important than that is I know that this is in God's hands. Okay, so we can get back to it. But you, you don't have to harp on that or whatever. But even just having that calmness, it's like, how can you do that? It's because I know I'm not in control, but God is, okay? So, hope. Uh, we don't often think of that as a Christian distinctive, but I think it, it would be a powerful thing if we can become deeper and deeper people of hope, um, loving one another deeply. Peter walked with Jesus. He heard Jesus say, by this, everybody's going to know you're my disciples. The love you show to each other. Here we're talking about love for each other. Peter writes this, chapter 1, verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have long, so you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Love one another deeply. That's why we talk about community here a lot, because we, we, we think, you know, Jesus said, it's how, it's how you treat each other. It's becoming a community and learning to become a community that when somebody falls, we're there to pick that person up. It's becoming a community that walks with people through difficult times, through struggling, and it's so cool for me to see you do that. And, and that is such a powerful witness to love each other deeply, to walk with each other even when we're wrong, and to say, I'll confront you on this and I'll challenge you on this. But you know what? I will still walk with you because I don't have to control you because I belong to Jesus and he's in control. Okay? I love one another deeply. I think if, if the world would see us as Christians genuinely loving and even disagreeing in love, 
If the world would see us learning to do that, the world might say, now hold on, how do you do that? How do you do that? Getting rid of anger, deceit, and envy. In, in, in chapter 2, the first verse, Peter writes these words. He says, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, that anger, that, that just burns. And, and can we live in a really angry age? And we can let go because God's in control of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, a form of deceit, envy, slander of every time, of every kind. Don't be greedy. Just get rid of that stuff. Um, in, the, in the text we were looking at, um, 2 verse 11, right? Dear friends, fighting against evil desires, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage against your soul. This is, this is interesting to me, okay? I'll be Andy standing. Look at me. Look at me. Um, uh, I thought that was funny when he did that. Look at me. Look at me. Um, so, now I forgot what I was thinking. No. Here, here's the deal. What, what we tend to do as Christians, what we tend to do is to say, yep, what's most important to Jesus is that we love our enemies and we love and have compassion. And that's certainly the greatest commandment. But, but there is right alongside it this call to holiness, Okay. This, halt, this call to, to fighting against sin. And the fact of the matter, what we tend to do is we tend to say, well, it's too hard to bring them together, so I'm going to choose one or the other. And, and this is part of the reason, because they're both in Scripture. This call to radical holiness that God does there is right and wrong, and God calls us to be holy people. The call to radical holiness and the call to unbelievable radical compassion and love. In, in some ways, I just... just throw out a possibility. I wonder if that's why we as Christians sometimes struggle when we're getting it right. We struggle with, with saying, well, neither of the parties represents both of those things together. Right? I mean, that's why we don't fit in political systems necessarily because the world says, well, it's one or the other. And in Christ, we say, no, it is radical compassion, radical help for broken people, and it is radical holiness. That's what we're called to have. That's what it means to follow Jesus, okay? And that's why we're exiles and strangers because we don't fit. The world wants to say, no, no, we're all either liberals or all, and, and we're worried about just compassion. We're all really conservatives and worried about holiness. I want to say, I'm trying to follow Jesus, and he cares about both. All right, the next one, huge, respecting others. And what Peter says in, in 1 Peter 2, verse 17, we've got to keep moving here. But show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God, and honor the emperor. And it's not based on honoring the emperor because the character of the emperor is so fine. The emperor was killing Christians, okay? The emperor was persecuting. And Peter says, uh, by the way, do honor the emperor. All right? Do honor that person. And you say, how can I do that? It's because God will take care of that person. I don't need to. Because God's God and I'm not. And I live in him. And, and then, you know, loving our enemies. Um, this is the last one I've got here. Do not repay evil. First Peter 3, verse 9. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. All right. I mean, to bless those who curse us. Imagine again if the next three and a half weeks we learn to be able to do that. And not in a snotty way, right? I mean, uh, you know, may the Lord bless you with an early death. Um, no. <laughs> May the Lord call you home soon. Um, right? No, no. I mean, to say, look, you're a broken person. I'm a broken person. And at the end of the day, what I want to do is I belong to God. And so, again, get involved. Have opinion. It's, it's not that we don't care about those things, but they're secondary. 
They're secondary. And I can bless somebody I deeply agree with or who has hurt me because ultimately I know God is going to take care of me, all right? So that's what I want to suggest. Again, this is just a start. We could have come up with others, but, but being people of hope, loving one another deeply, getting rid of anger, fighting against evil desires, respecting others, loving our enemies. I think that this is what Peter is talking about when he says, you know what, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds, and glorify God on the day he visits us. So what does what Christian weirdness look like? This is a start, okay? And at this point, I want to close just a couple of minutes here, but um, I want to close by saying, all right, that's not me as much as it should be. And, and so the question is, how do we grow into that more? How do we grow more strange? How do I become somebody who can actually love my enemies? How can I be somebody who can honor those even who I feel like are dishonorable? How do I honor... How do I respect somebody who's, be, you know, whatever it is, however you want, how do I do that? And I want to suggest just one thing this morning, and, and I've been hinting at it, so hopefully we can do this fairly quickly, but, but it's by remembering who we are in Christ, by remembering that we have a new identity, that, that I am not, that, that, that my story is a different story, that I, I belong to a different place. You see, let me give you a real quick contrast here. You see, the world says that our identity is in our possessions, right? The one who dies with the most toys win. Retail therapy, some of you may have been involved in that. Maybe I have once or twice. But, but you know where you say, I'm feeling sad, so I'm going to go buy a new tool for the garage. I'm feeling sad, so I'm going to buy myself a new dress. I'm feeling sad, so I'm going to buy a new purse or whatever. And, 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 and in a sense, what we're saying is because really what, what gives me joy is my possessions. That's not wrong to go buy a purse. Don't get me wrong. I'm not crazy. But, but to say when we turn that into a center of our lives, when we say my life is good because of what I have, when, when, when that becomes it, it's a really, really bad place to find our identity, it, it, our possessions. It, sometimes it's our prestige. It's my reputation that I have to protect. I have to protect my reputation. It's my prestige. I am respected. It's my power. I have to hold on to that because I have to try to control everything. It's my power. It's, it's the way I have fun. I mean, I don't want anybody to take that away from me. And, 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 and let me just make something clear again. None, these things are all not evil. Okay? They're not evil at all. God gives us good things to enjoy. God gives us resources. God gives us power to have an impact in this world. He gives us a, a, a good self-esteem when it's rooted in him and so on. But what happens is when we make these things our identity, when we make these things the center of our lives, then we find ourselves constantly threatened. I think this is kind of what Andy Stanley was getting at, right? He was saying, you know what? We're so afraid. What if I lose these things? What if I lose these things? Because all these things, God never promised me I'd have all these things. All these things can be taken away from me. I could lose all my possessions tomorrow. I could lose any my reputation tomorrow. I could lose my power. I could lose all of that stuff, right? And, and, and so if my identity is in these things, if my life is good because of these things, then I am constantly threatened and I am constantly scared and scaring the children. It means I'm often attacking others. Because if you're threatening me, I'm going to have to make sure I attack you. And all too often it means I'm arrogant. Because I did it my way. Why don't you get yours? I got mine, you get yours. And that's why God says over and over and over and over in his word that these things are good gifts from him, but they are not the source of our identity. The world says our identity is in those things. The Bible says, God says that our identity is in Christ. And it is only when we find our identity in Christ that we are able to experience what God wants us to experience and that we're able to love. See, if my identity is Christ, then I know where my genuine security comes from. 
My security comes, does not come from knowing, and, and it, it, I'm not saying guns, no guns, yes, gun, whatever. But my security, friends, if you think your security comes from having a gun under your bed, then your security is constantly going to be threatened because you're not always going to be able to have a gun. Hey, who knows, right? But if your security is in Christ. Now, again, I would rather live in a world where I don't have to worry about my neighbor coming over and shooting me. Right? It's a better place to be. But the fact is, my security does not come from knowing my neighbor's not good. My security comes from knowing that my life is hidden with God in Christ. And even if that neighbor comes over and shoots me, I hope my family will grieve. But they might not. But... But what I believe is that's not the end of the story. All right? It's my genuine security. Again, it's not that we don't worry about other kinds of security. I lock my doors sometimes. But, but deep security, real hope. When I remember who I am in Christ, then I have a hope that I don't have to try to control. It's, it's freedom from having to control. I've talked about that. It's freedom to enjoy. To recognize these are good gifts, right? Those possess- I can enjoy it. I can enjoy my boat. And if it sinks tomorrow, it's not the end of the world. Bummer. That's not the end of the world. Because that's not where my identity was. can enjoy the fun we have together. But if persecution starts and we have to go underground, it's not the end of the world. Because Jesus Christ is still in control. How do we grow in this? I think it is by constantly reminding ourselves of who we are in Christ. And reminding ourselves that I don't have to control everything. Reminding ourselves that that is where my security comes from. So listen again. We're going to close with this. Listen again to 1 Peter 2, starting at verse 9. And just just hear how Peter invites us to a great life. But you, you hillside, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are God's special possession. Do you realize that? How secure you are. God is holding on to you. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness. You you blew it before. But God has called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's who we are. That's why we give mercy to others. Because we're only saved by God's grace. Dear friends, verse 11, I urge you as foreigners, as exiles, as weird and wonderful people to abstain from sinful desires. Don't give in to that greed and anger and envy and jealousy which wage against your soul. But live such good lives among the pagans, among the unbelievers, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So we pray, and then we learn to say, Jesus, help me to just trust you enough to love others and and to seek holiness in a way that honors you. Let's pray. Father, it's hard to trust you that much. We don't like to give up control. One of the good things many of us have is we have control. We have a good security system. Thank you for those things. They're gifts. But Father, remind us that ultimately we are not in control. Remind us that ultimately you are. Remind us that no matter what happens, nothing can take us out of your hands. Remind us that our, uh, we are, our lives are hidden with Christ in you. And help us to care deeply about this world, but to not care too deeply. To recognize that we know no matter what, you are in control. And help us not to scare the children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.